A change of scenery, my family had already had a bad year, even before Louise Shell came into our lives. Pop had been drinking heavily and the abuse was ramping up in our house. I'd been having bad headaches for a few years, unusual for a child my age, or so I was told. It was getting so bad that mom took me to USC Medical Center to make sure nothing was wrong with my brain. She was worried that Pop may have irreparably damaged me, and if he hadn't already, he soon would. I remember one visit in particular, mom was watching nervously as the doctor shaved parts of my head to attach the electrodes. They felt uncomfortable on the back of my head, but even more so, I remember the horrible smell they gave off when they were attached to my forehead. I don't know the outcome of those tests, but I heard the doctor and nurse discussing me, why is this boy having such terrible headaches, I knew the answer. Pop told me at least a thousand times. When I asked why he was kicking me, he answered, I'm teaching you how to be a man, violence in his family was like a gift passed down from one generation to the next. But all the abuse was kept quiet, only done behind closed doors. To the outside world, we wore the mask of a perfect family. It was important to Pop that's what people saw. Pop had started his own business as a television repairman, drove a nice car, lived in a newly purchased house and put me in private Catholic school. His family had a reputation to protect. They were proud descendants of the Vera family of Nayarit of mainland Mexico. In Nayarit, my grandfather's ancestors lived for generations tending to their cattle and growing tobacco. My grandfather, my abuelo, was an officer in the Mexican Revolution, led by Emiliano Zapata. He joined General Zapata after a harrowing standoff in his small town. The legend says other Mexican nationals tried to take over their village by stealing the cattle, crops and women for their army. When Abuelito and the men of his town heard that troops were coming, they sent the women and livestock into the hills to hide. When the military rode into town, they tortured the men to get them to give up the location. But they refused. Just as things seemed like they would take a turn for the worst, with my abuelito's cousin hung up at the gallows, they heard the roar of Zapata's horses coming to free them. Zapata drove the troops away, saving my uncle and grandfather. That was the day they joined the resistance. Abuelito's exploits in Mexico were legendary, passed down through my family year after year. After joining the revolution, he found himself in front of a firing squad with his cousin by his side again. The two of them were placed at the edge of a vado, a type of shallow ravine, with their hands tied behind their backs. They were not blindfolded, but their feet were bound together. Seven men pointed long rifles directly at them. Just as they were getting ready to fire, Abuelito's revolutionary friends snuck up on the firing squad. They came out shooting. The firing squad turned to fight back, and my grandfather and cousin fell into the vado. Having crawled with their hands and feet bound until they were away from the squad. They untied each other before running off to safety. After the incident with the firing squad, my uncle and grandfather lay low for a few years and planned their return to Nayarit. When they finally came back to their town, they found Bandito still occupied it. They say Abuelito rode in with his cousin and cleared the town, killing every last Bandito with his extraordinary fighting skills. After the revolutionaries won, Zapata offered Abuelito any plot of land he wanted, in lieu of monetary payment for his military service.
he chose a mountaintop parcel in Tijuana, large enough to build at least five houses on so that his family could always live together. With his valiant family history in mind, Pop set out to make his own mark on the world. As a young man, he became a soccer player for the Mexico national team, the Chivas, and, on a work visa in 1949, got the chance to make a life in America. In those days, he worked part-time at Phillips Music Store. Out front it had a big statue of the RCA dog with the spot over his eye. One day, a tall young woman with olive skin and dark eyes came in looking for a record. There was an instant attraction. She looked at him and saw a handsome young Errol Flynn, with his dark skin and thin mustache. They talked that day of a shared love of music as he helped her make her purchase. Despite their mutual attraction, they didn't exchange contact information. One day, Pop was sitting at a luncheonette when the same young woman appeared next to him and asked if the empty seat at his table was taken. He turned and smiled at her, recognizing her from that day at the store, and said, No, it's been waiting for you. From that day the two danced the night away in dance halls like the Palladium. It wasn't long before they were married and children followed. Pop was proud of his American family. As the eldest of his brothers and sisters, he would go back to Mexico frequently to show off his young family. Some of my happiest childhood memories were of our monthly treks to Tijuana to visit Pop's large family. I had great times there with Mom, who taught herself to speak Spanish so she would never be left out. Her favorite pastime there was to go to the dog races. She was lucky too. She would come with $30 and turn it into hundreds. With her winnings, we would head to Puerto Nuevo to buy lobsters for a dollar apiece, my mom loved to see us have fun. Back home, she took us to Santa Monica Beach often, I hated leaving, so she would give me a bucket and fill it with sand and water so I could keep some of the beach for myself. I would mine the bucket all through the car ride, making sure none of the sand or water was lost. When we got home mom would set it in front of me and let me soak my feet until my skin pruned and the water made my toenails soft, mom would take the whole family on adventures to all the popular places in the area, including Pacific Ocean Park for picnics and, of course, all the amusement parks. I had great memories of fishing with pop off the rocks at Redondo Beach. That was one place we were at peace. Pop and I would get up early on Sunday mornings, just the two of us, and we'd buy tackle and bait then find a good spot on the rocks. We used to watch the big sport fishing boats come in, and I would tell Pop that one day I would have one of my own. He rolled with laughter at the thought that the son of a Mexican immigrant would one day own a boat like that, when times were good, they were really good. But when they were bad it was too much for my mom. I could tell it weighed on her, but it wasn't until March of 1962 that I knew how much. The church Louise Shell had invited us to attend services that wasn't very far from our new house on Parkview Street. The church, owned by the International Peace Mission Movement, sometimes just called the Peace Mission, was connected to several small houses, and all were surrounded by a chain-link fence. A long banquet table dominated one of the big rooms in the house. It was a nice setup with fine china and silver. On the wall, overlooking the table was a large portrait of a light-skinned African-American man with a bright smile and a bald head. I didn't yet know it, but it was Father Divine. 
This California branch of the Peace Mission movement was run by a woman whose movement name was Happy Word. She was a large woman, probably better than six feet tall, with wavy brown hair. When she spoke she was very animated. As we walked in I said a lazy, hello, and the room went quiet. Happy Word came forward and jovially said, we say peace here, Tommy. Then she leaned in close with a smile on her face. We never invite hell into our bodies. Not even as a greeting. When she straightened back up, she showed me to the table. You sit with the men, can't I sit with my mom? I asked. She shook her head and pointed to a seat opposite my mom, Susie and Louise, beside the men. The man next to me told me the rules. I couldn't sit with women, not even my mom or sister, on divine property, and the seating was always to be one white person next to one dark-skinned person, to enforce Father Divine's integration policies. This arrangement allowed my mom and Louise to have hushed conversations away from my ears. The excitement around their whispered conversations led me to believe something big was on the horizon. Summer was on its way and just before St. Thomas Parochial School let out for the summer, I was daydreaming in class. The strict nuns who ran the school did not tolerate disrespect or anything less than rapt attention. While I was lost in thought, the sister leading the class asked me a question, but I didn't hear her, suddenly, thwack, a rod came down across my knuckles which so startled me that I jumped up on my desk and shouted, nobody beats me except my pop. And then, without even thinking, I cold-cocked Sister Margarita, I had been beaten by Pop so many times it came out of me automatically. I was taken to Monsignor O'Dwyer's office. I dreaded the call to Mom that I expected would end in another beating. When Mom came to the school, she defended me upon seeing my welt-covered knuckles. The Monsignor questioned her about my outburst, adding that he was shocked, as I was usually so well-behaved. All Mom said was, Don't worry, Monsignor. We have a plan for Tommy. He won't be returning to St. Thomas next year, I didn't ask Mom what that meant. I was more worried that she was going to tell Pop what happened, but she assured me she wouldn't and that was good enough for me. That evening at dinner, Mom casually asked Pop, Do you think Tommy, Susie and I could go visit my family for the summer break? Her entire family lived in.